to the Chaya Podcast, a sacred platform where Jewish Iranian changemakers turn taboo topics into transformational opportunities for the community. I'm your hostess, Nicole Napovar, a licensed psychotherapist with a private practice in Century City, and I'm also the co-founder of Chaya, a community of intimate gatherings for Jewish Iranians to experience meaningful connection and deepen their sense of self. The intention of this podcast is to support our listeners' evolution by challenging the rules our parents and community want for us in order to have their definition of the best life. Instead, let's decide from a more conscious place in our souls which practices we want to keep, which ones we want to let go of, and how we can own those decisions with grace so that we can thrive in more fulfilling and authentic lives. This is the Chaya Podcast, and I'm your hostess, Nicole Napovar. I'm sitting here today with Esther Amini, who is a writer, a painter, and a psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice. Her short stories have appeared in Elle, Lilith, Tablet, The Jewish Week, Barnard Magazine, TK's University, Inscape Literary, and Proximity. She was named one of Aspen Word's two best emerging memoirists and awarded its Emerging Writer Fellowship in 2016 based on her memoir entitled Concealed. Her pieces have been performed by Jewish Women's Theater in LA and, Man- and in Manhattan. And she was chosen by JWT as their artist in residence in 2019. So thank you so much for joining us, Esther. And I'm thank so you. excited to chat with you today about your memoir called Concealed, which, as you've described to me, is not just about how your Iranian family concealed their Jewishness in Iran, but also about what we conceal from one another today in America and from ourselves and the struggle to be thoroughly visible and seen. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of elaborate a little. Well, as as you just mentioned, it has multiple meanings. It began with my parents who came from the city of Meshed in Iran, uh, which was and is the most fanatically Islamic city within the entire country, and they were Jews living underground like the Moranos of Spain, uh, which means above ground they pretended they were Muslim. My mother wore the black chador. My father prayed from the Quran many times a day with at the public square, within the public square, and yet in the privacy and secrecy of their home, they were devout Jews. Um, so they concealed, the, which goes back in time. My ancestors did the same. Um, so that becomes a part of your character. That doesn't, that, you can't leave that behind because you come to America. You know, they, they came to America right after World War II. Uh, they arrived here in 1947. They, a few years later, I was born. I, being their only daughter, their youngest, their only American-born child. I have two older brothers who were born in Iran. And what's interesting is how that whole concept and that feeling of needing to conceal oneself gets transferred to the next generation and to me in particular. I didn't have to hide the fact that I was Jewish. I had to hide the fact that I was interested in being a person they didn't want me to become, Mm -hmm. which is to go to school. My mother was never allowed to go to school. (coughs) She was illiterate. In Mashad, girls did not go to school. Mm -hmm. 
She was married at a very young age, at the age of 14, to my 29-year-old father. Uh, My grandmother was married at the age of nine to her 29-year-old husband. Wow. So those were the expectations, not exactly that way, but the expectation was that I remain illiterate, marry very young, as early as possible, early adolescence, um, and not develop my mind. Because the prevailing wisdom at the time was an uneducated woman makes an excellent wife. Mm. That a woman who has thoughts, opinions of her own will undermine marriage. So that's the package. So I had to, here I am growing up in Queens in New York, going to public school. Um, My father did not want me to read, so I would hide the books under my mattress. Uh, He certainly didn't want me to go to college, so I had to forge signatures, and I don't know how I thought I was ever going (laughs) to make my way through college. Um, He went on a hunger strike when I decided to move into Barnard. Again, we were in New York. We were living in Queens. Barnard was in Manhattan. It wasn't that far away. But for him, it meant he was losing me to that outside Mm -hmm. secular world that was going to pervert me in some way. All of this hiding of who I am um, was part of the concealed. And, uh, and then later in life, I began to realize that I was also concealing from myself parts of myself, parts mm-hmm. of myself. Can uh, you tell me more about what you mean by that? Because I think a lot of, you know, a lot of Persian Jews, it sounds like you're, you were a first generation Jewish Iranian American. Yes. And I think for a lot of us who our parents came here around the revolution, we're now sort of experiencing that transitional generation of trying to figure out, okay, who is it that we want to be in between these two very different cultures, one being the American culture and one being the Jewish Iranian culture. And so I think, yeah, there is the element and the struggle of, okay, our parents want a certain thing for us and maybe we want something different, but I also think there is a level of maybe sometimes denial or shame about the things that we actually really want for ourselves as well that we don't let ourselves want. I think it's hard to trust ourselves when we are children, when we're teenagers, when we're young adults. Our parents loom large. I think the fear is... If I do what I want to do, if I become who I want to become, I will lose my parents. I will lose my family. Uh, and I wanted, I wanted both to have me and to have them. Mm-hmm. And that was the dilemma. How do I have both? Um, I wasn't feeling reckless. I wasn't feeling like, oh, I don't give a damn. Whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to go out there and be me. I wanted to hold on to uh, their love and their support and the community to some degree. So I think not knowing how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you balance? It is risk-taking. You do have to take, I think, calculated risks. Uh, I did it step by step. And I think eventually what you discover is that you have inner strengths that you didn't know you have Mm. and that 
you can survive it all. Mm -hmm. You know, they may be upset, they may be angry. In my case, that I wanted to be an educated woman. I mean, for Americans, that's Standard. no big deal. <laughs> why, you know, why were you suffering under this? But for a Persian family, and in specifically coming from a Mashadi family, uh, there's a limit to how much you should learn. And then the idea is to quickly get married, have children, and be a housewife. So I think it's about, I think it's a process. And we have to allow time for that too. There is no magic bullet. Uh, I think we have to make lots of mistakes. I'm a big believer in failure. I think it's um, undervalued mm. failure. Making mistakes, falling flat on our faces, realizing, oh, why did I, why was I trying to be that person when that's not me? Because those errors force us to realign ourselves with who we really are. Life is messy, you know? And, yes. And that's exactly what it's about. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. And I think that's very true in our culture. It's very much about how can I look as perfect as possible, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's no room for mistakes or failures when you're trying to look perfect. Yes. And you're trying to look perfect in the eyes of your parents very often. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that becomes the yardstick. Mm -hmm. Will they approve of me? Mm -hmm. Am I a good girl in their eyes? Uh, are they proud? You don't want to create shame. Shame is a big word within the Persian community. You want to avoid that. Abru. Uh, you want to maintain your family's abru, which is their face, which is their reputation. Uh, family reputation that goes back hundreds of years. A family name has value. I mean, that's so different from the American culture. You don't mm -hmm. think about the word abru. Mm -hmm. At some point, what clicks, and it takes time. That's why I really don't want people to think like if they're not there now, they never will be. It takes time, but at some point, it clicks that your inner yardstick, your own judgment, your judgment of yourself um, has to prevail. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer what others think of you, it's what you think of you. And it's a cliche, it sounds simple, but it's hard work. For the people that you love the most, and I know there's studies on this, that when you look at the people in your life that are the most important to you, and then you think about them not approving of something that you're doing, your entire nervous system, every cell in your body reacts. And it's so hard to sit in that discomfort. And, you know, I'm a psychotherapist as well. And this is something I've struggled with in my personal life. And that I see clients coming in all the time, you know, asking you know, saying, I'm not happy with who I am. I, I don't like, obviously, something in my life, and it's not working for me. And a lot of it comes back down to this question of, so who do you want to be? You know, how do you want to show up in this world? How do you want to feel? Mm -hmm. and, and how do we create that for you? How do we create support and relationships around you that will support you in being that version of yourself? You know? I think that's a very good point. I think a support system is critical 
it's selecting friends who understand and who you respect and who encourage you to be the person you feel you need to be. Um, there might be mentors in your life, teachers, therapists that you see, uh, employers, employees who get it. They understand the trip you're trying to take. And because you have respect for them, their word has value. And it begins to outweigh over time what your culture is saying. Mm. You've created another culture for yourself. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't mean that you want to abandon the family culture. It means that you can live in more than one culture. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny because I can relate so much to what you're saying. I you know, was born and raised in LA and very much grew up in the Persian Jewish bubble and then kind of hit this point of, oh, I really, I, I want more than this, you know, and I'm, I feel constricted. I feel unfulfilled. There's something missing for me here. So I ran away to New York <laughs> <laughs> and that was its own process too with yes. my own father who, when I called him and I told him like, dad, I got into my dream school. I uh -huh. got into Columbia. I can't believe it. I'm uh -huh. so excited. And I can't believe this is happening. And he was like, call me when you get into UCLA. And he just like <laughs> hangs up the phone. And I was just like, okay, this is going to be a thing. And uh -huh. it was really sweet. Within a few days of back and forth, he, you know, was very kind to give me his blessing. And I would have gone either way, but it was really nice to have that. It's challenging to be between these two cultures, but I think it's also, there's no better time, I think, to be alive and to be able to experience everything that comes with these cultures and really pick and choose what is it that I want and what is it that I want to let go of, yes. which is something you talk about a lot Yes. in your book as well. So I'm curious to hear from you. What was your process with, and still is, it sounds like your process with, you know, figuring that out? Well, you're right. I continue to figure it out. And I believe I will until the day I die. I don't believe this ever, ever ends. But as I said to you earlier, um, that voice inside of my head that represents the Mashadi uh, way of thinking, the volume has lowered. So it's not as loud. It's not as uh, overwhelming. It's in a corner of my brain and I hear it whisper. It's a whisper now. And, um, and, I f and I examine it. There are times when I feel what it has to say is meaningful. Mm -hmm. It's not all wrong. And there are times when it does not pertain to me. So I think it's discriminating when and where is very important. I think living, just going through life, in my case, going to Barnard College, even though my father went on a suicidal hunger strike when I moved into the dorm. Um, very difficult for me because I thought he would kill himself. Mm. Realizing he didn't kill himself. Realizing I can survive, he can survive. How does that alter my thinking? Mm -hmm. Moving on, deciding to go to graduate school. No one was happy about that. That's going too far. That's pushing it too far seeing 
they I took care of that. You know, I took out loans for graduate school. I wasn't asking anyone to support me. Everyone survived. That's information. Later in life, uh, I married an Ashkenazi man. I did not marry later in life a Persian man. Um, and to my surprise, they were all thrilled. I never would have predicted that. <laughs> uh, and then later in life, you see, it's all about taking those steps and checking out what is really happening. How much is my worst nightmare and how much is reality? Mm. Of course, they'll get upset, but will they get over it? Will they get over it? And they did. Um, later in life, I chose to become a psychoanalytic psychotherapist uh, with a private practice. I, I taught for many, many years at an analytic institute in Manhattan. I said to myself, my father is going to totally divorce himself from me and tell himself his daughter has died. Quite the contrary. He started introducing me to friends at Persian weddings. He, would, <laughs> he, he looped his arm into mine and was dragging me around and saying, and this is my daughter, the doctor. I'm right. not a doctor. I don't have a medical degree. But that's how he interpreted it and was so proud. His daughter, the doctor, this is the same man who didn't want me to learn to read and write. Yeah, I think that's very true. It's, what there's was so that many mixed, all about? So many mixed messages in, in our community that we get, right? Like, ha, you know, make sure you have an education, but when you get married, stop working. Or, you know, dre dress in, you know, dress in a, like, a sexy way that's going to attract men, but don't have sex with men. <laughs> or, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. keep Shabbat or, like, go to Shabbat with your family on Friday nights and spend time together, but don't be too religious. It's so confusing. Yes. You know? It's confusing if you listen too closely. Mm. If you hear it and you say, well, I need to do whatever it is I need to do. I need to do this. Let me do this. I think often you're going to be surprised, very often, because they do love us. Our parents do love us. And the bottom, bottom line is they do not want to lose us as much as we don't want to lose them. Yeah. And they adapt. I, when you read my book, Concealed, you'll see my father was not an adaptable man by any means. Um, he was very much stuck in his way of thinking, a very traditional, inflexible, nonverbal. And meanwhile, he adapted to everything I chose to do in life. And later in life, suddenly was proud of me, which sounded crazy to me. Um, I think there's a lesson in that, that they too evolve. They too find it within themselves to adapt. Uh, they too are so afraid of losing you completely. It's hard to believe that, I think, when you're a child, an adolescent, a young adult. It's very hard to believe that. But it happens to be a fact. So I have a question for you because I think a lot of us, maybe deep down, we do have this fear of abandoning our parents or them feeling abandoned by us or them abandoning us. And then there's this also deeper knowing of, okay, but we're going to get through this. 
But there's this really uncomfortable phase where that adjustment is happening, where everything in your body, every cell in your body is like, just stop doing it. Stop doing this thing that's different that they don't like, whether it's, you know, going to the school that they don't want you to go to or dating the guy that they don't want you to date or the girl that they don't want you to date or whatever. But in your heart of hearts, you know that this is like right for you. So how do you sit in the discomfort of that? How did you do it? And and is there anything that you would like to tell our listeners or suggest to our listeners? Because I I mean, I see this in my practice as well of people are are willing to to take this risk, but sitting in the discomfort of that time period is is so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. It's so difficult to hold out, you know? Mm. I mean, I'm having so many different thoughts when you're raising the question. So they're branching out in different directions. I mean, one thought I have immediately is that one should consider therapy. I think it's really important. I myself went through therapy feeling I'm torn. I'm torn. And all the things I want to do that seem very normal and average for American girls my age was considered sinful by my parents. Um, And I found a wonderful therapist and I worked with him for quite a while and I was able to develop a more solid sense of self and overcome a lot of my fears and take those baby steps forward, checking out what's the reaction and learning that I had made it huger in my mind than it really was. And um, that's one thought I have. Another thought uh, is that we have to make mistakes. I caved after I graduated from Barnard and got my BA. I caved and I said, I'm going to be the girl my father wants me to be. And I married a Persian. Um, The marriage was not good, but I had to make that mistake in order to get back onto my feet and create a different inner narrative. And that inner narrative of who am I? What I see I, I did it my father's way. It did not work. It was very, very painful for me. So what's the alternative? And that's where I go back to making mistakes. That's okay, too. You know, we can take the easy way out, be exactly who they say we should be, and then discover um, that we cannot live that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels, it feels like a death trap. That can force us. How difficult was it for you to lift off the metaphoric chador? Initially, it felt impossible. Uh, I had a driving need to write down my story, thinking it would be for me, perhaps for my children. I have adult children. Uh, I have grandchildren for them when they get a little older to read. And future generations, I thought it was a very interesting story. Part of it is there's a lot of humor in the book. This is not a somber story. So there are a lot of laughs. 
and it's also poignant. So I figured if I don't put this down, no one will. Since my mother was illiterate, and all women coming from my father and mother's side were illiterate. No one could read or write. Um, no one put down their story. So here I am in America, educated, the first female in my family to be able to write my own story. So I felt a lot of pressure internal. It was all coming from me that I should do this and I should do it for the family. So I did it and I won't get into the details, but it just turned out that someone had read it and then they wanted to uh, publish it. And next thing I know, some of my short stories were being taken by Jewish Women's Theater. And I saw, wow, there's a real interest and hunger in this. Maybe I should write the full-blown story from beginning to end a memoir. Part of me was feeling how dare you? Mm. You have no right to make public your own private story. And I knew that was the voice of Meshad. I knew that was really the voice of a culture I had come from. Mm. Certainly, my parents have passed away. And if they were alive and well today, I think I would have had a great deal of difficulty doing it. So it was partly their voices the culture saying it's taboo. You know, you do not write about the family, certainly not honestly. And then there was another part of me that was feeling, but I have to. I have to because I learned a lot from all of this. I'm not writing the book to make fun of people or to trash them or belittle them. I'm trying to understand my own past and I'm trying to help others understand theirs too. I think there are a lot of common themes that can be extracted from this book. It's symbolic. It means that I'm not going to be afraid anymore of what others may think, and I'm going to really do what I need to do. It's, it's kind of that final exclamation mark. I will not live under the sheets anymore. I used to read my books under the bed sheets with a flashlight so my father wouldn't know I was reading. I'm coming out from beneath the sheets. And if not now, when? If not now, that I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, uh, I'm a professional, I've, I've been in, in the field of, of psychoanalytic psychotherapy for many, many decades. If not now, when? So I had to, uh, I had to align myself with me. And it was the final, it was the final punctuation mark of aligning myself with me. I think what's also has happened over the decades with me is that I'm becoming very interested in discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I like living in a um, uncomfortable space. Mm -hmm. So is it uncomfortable writing one's own story? Absolutely. But I'm beginning to find real excitement and meaning in, 
in not being so comfortable. Let's get out of our comfort zones. Yeah, I think for anyone that's committed to a life of growth, they have to get comfortable with the idea of then be uncomfortable for a lot of their life because growth is uncomfortable Yes, sometimes, you yes. know, a lot of the time. So if, if you are, a lot of people go around and they're like, oh, I'm here to grow. I'm, I've been put on this earth to grow and I'm, this is what I'm going to do. And they say it with so much um, confidence and it's like, and great for them if that's what it's about. But I think the dark side of that is that then you're going to spend a lot of time being uncomfortable. So how do you get comfortable and <laughs> uncomfortable or how do you embrace that, you know? But it provides its own rewards. So every time you do something that innately feels uncomfortable, I shouldn't be do I shouldn't be writing, I shouldn't be writing my book. And then you get pleasure out of the end result of what you've created. And you see that people who've read the book and respond and say, Oh my God, you know, I grew up in Korea and your book spoke to me. And I say, Really? And someone else is Chinese and your book spoke to me. Really? In what way? those, that's the gratification. And so, yeah, I lived in discomfort going through the creative process of writing it. But at the end, there was such reward knowing that I didn't just write this book narcissistically for me. Mm -hmm. I'm really helping a lot of other people from various cultures feel, yes, what they're going through is understandable, normal, difficult and giving them hope. Writing for me was an integrative experience. Can you tell us what you mean by integrative for those of us who don't know? <laughs> sure. I was, you know, I grew up totally confused by my family and by my life. Uh, it wasn't just the fact that I came from a Mashadi family. My parents were diametric opposites, which was very hard for me to figure. My father was kind of a medieval Iranian man who was lived in silence, prohibited speech, would lose his temper very easily when he was younger, and was a frightening figure for me. And he believed wholeheartedly in the teachings of Mashad. Then you have my mother who was like, she was a rebel. She was uneducated. She was 20 years younger than him. She, she was a child bride and she was outspoken. She was irreverent. At times it, it was exciting to watch. And at times it also frightened me because she didn't use her judgment well. She didn't think before she spoke. And so at times... I saw her as heroic, and at times I saw her as highly damaging. And then, of course, here they are as a pair, always in conflict, always fighting. So that was confusing to me. I didn't know where did I fit in. I didn't know who was my ally. Did I have an ally? I kind of felt lost between them. Um, and. I felt I was growing up with hieroglyphics, mm. the hieroglyphics of signs and symbols. You know, I didn't have 
a parent who would sit down and explain to me exactly what's going on here, what we're really differing over, how it's going to be resolved. There was a lot that wasn't said in a clear way, which I think is true for most families. Mm -hmm. I think even getting out of the Persian world, I think lots of children grow up feeling they're growing up with hieroglyphics, like half-truths, unspoken truths, secrets, and trying to make sense out of it all. So to get back to your question, to write the book, I was trying to make sense out of it all Mm -hmm. and try to integrate the dissonance between my mother and my father, between the Iranian culture and the American culture, between my own inner needs and what my parents are telling me my needs should be, and making sense out of it all, turning it into one whole, understanding it. I walked away with a tremendous compassion for my parents after I wrote this book, really understanding their hardships, their limitations, and feeling very grateful for who they were and what they did do, even though it was a huge struggle for me, realizing that it all helped me become, me become a very strong person, ultimately. So in hindsight, it all worked for me. It didn't feel like it at the time. It all worked for me. And that's integrating the information mm-hmm. by writing. You can talk about yourself, and it's a whole different process when you write about yourself. And, and that was new for me to discover as well. I was learning new things by writing. So the book, in many ways, was healing for me and gave me added insight into, into the confusion that I felt I grew up with. Mm-hmm. I have to also add that I have two older brothers who were remarkable as brothers. And in the book, the value of siblings, the value of siblings, the role of siblings, in my case, my brothers uh, parented me and I feel we're my lifesavers. I know our listeners can't hear, you know, see us, but I'm smiling as you say that because I think siblings can, can really make it or break it sometimes, you know? Me and my own brother, it's like we just, we laugh so much and we bring so much humor and so much lightness to our uh-huh. family. He's just hilarious. Uh-huh. And he'll call me and be like, you're the only one that's gonna understand, like, let me just explain to you what dad just said <laughs> or what mom just did in her yes. accent or yes. whatever. And yes. So there's that. And then there's also we fight for each other when yes. our parents don't get something. It's like, you know, they come to the other one of us and we have each other's back. And, yes. you know, it's really beautiful. Yes. And it's also interesting to see the flip side, which is like when there are alliances in families and the siblings are, are against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, siblings are so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they also, you know, very often when you when you sit down with Sibs and you talk about parents, you realize that you each had a different mother and you each had a different father. Totally. So we didn't share the same parents, even though biologically we did. Mm-hmm. Um, in my case, I was the only girl. In my case, I was the youngest of three. Um, in my case, I was born in America. I am American by definition. The way each brother was treated 
was different because of their gender, their personalities, and who my parents were at each stage when they had mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always tell my brother, I'm like, I paved this role for you, this, <laughs> this road for you. I paved it. Uh-huh. It's all me. Like you're the younger brother. And <laughs> obviously, yeah, there's gender roles too, and yeah. you know. But I'm always like, you got it so easy. Uh-huh. I had it so hard. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, our parents have evolved so much. Yeah. So. Yeah. So funny. So there's the commonality of where you can sit and talk about. Uh, your parents with your sibs and laugh and know exactly, exactly what you each mean. And at the same time, we each did grow up with different parents. And to be able to pull that together and make it part of the composition. Beautiful. Yeah. And you talk about your siblings, I'm guessing, in your book as well. Oh, yes. Yes. They're highlighted, my two brothers. Amazing. Yes. One of the questions that I like to end with on our podcast episodes is, as we both know, there are a lot of rules in this community about, you know, how to live our lives. And they're given to us by our parents or by this the community that we grew up in with the best of intentions. And it's with the intention of wanting the best life for us. But sometimes those rules can feel rigid or uninspiring. And so my question for you is, what's one rule that you've broken in the Persian Jewish community, and what did you learn or gain from it? A rule I broke years ago was to get divorced when I divorced a Persian man. Uh, At that time, it was truly prohibited. You were expected to live with your lot. Another rule that I broke was to be outspoken and to say what I think and what I feel, even when I was expected within their presence to be silent. And hopefully I did all of that respectfully. That's not acceptable. And as I mentioned earlier, I think writing this book, not, I mean, they may buy the book and read it and want to talk to me about it, but it must create discomfort because within the Mashadi world, um, you do not write about your family, not openly, not honestly, the strengths and the weaknesses, the, um, the mistakes they may have made, the misunderstandings. Uh, you do not go public. And I think that's the biggest the biggest rule I just broke. Part of me did that for many reasons, but the one reason I didn't mention yet is one reason was to model. I wanted to model for my daughter, um, my son, my grandchildren, uh, other young women who feel they need to express themselves and they need not to censor themselves, whether they want to become uh, dancers, musicians, writers, trapeze artists, I don't care what it is, but not to censor and to give themselves that blast of life. You know, we have, as far as we know, one life, and I really believe in living out our passions. I'm hoping that breaking this last rule of writing the book 
will help others actualize their own passions. So it sounds like what you've gained from breaking the rules is impact and passion and just inspiring others to pursue their passions as well. Absolutely. So I really want to thank you for coming and sharing this all with us today and for giving us permission as well to continue and inspire us to break the rules. Thank Um, you. I want to thank you for having me. It's been a pure delight. Thank you. And so how can we purchase your book and how can we get more of you? (laughs) Oh, uh, you can. First of all, I have a website. So uh, if you go to Esther Amini, A-M-I-N-I, it's all one word, estheramini.com. You can go to my website. You can see what I've written. Um, the book is also on my website. It's listed with Amazon and Barnes & Noble. So you can place your pre-orders and orders. Um, and uh, hopefully we will have more time together, uh, yes. Nicole, and, and we can have more of each other. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you so, so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm so excited for everyone to go out there and read about your story. So thank you. Thank you. Hey, Chaya family. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was brought to you by Chaya Community, a sacred space for Jewish Iranians to experience meaningful connection and deepen their sense of self. It's also brought to you by WeWork, finally a space that works how you do. WeWork's new media and entertainment locations are wired and ready for your next big creative project. From soundproof editing rooms to state-of-the-art screening rooms, our media-ready spaces have you covered from pilot to wrap. Book a tour of our newest M&E building at the Pacific Design Center, Green, by visiting we.co slash entertainment. Again, that's we.co slash entertainment. Thank you. Music is composed by Persian Jewish artist Chloe Primorani. This song, entitled Aina, is off her award-winning album, Vegan Majesty. <laughs>